0: Is that how it's going to start for,
4: forever that, now? That's how a bonus
0: episode starts. Oh, yes. we're This is our second bonus episode. I, I, eventually, we are going to trail off and take a nap because <laughs> uh, season one is done.
4: Season one is done. Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks.
0: I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And
4: this really is a bonus episode. Like, uh, this is just something for you. This is something uh, for the listeners, something that we thought would be really cool. Because, you know, the thing is about No Dogs in Space as opposed to uh, like last podcast on the left like last podcast on the left like I'm not gonna hear from Arthur Shawcross even if he was still alive, to tell me like how to do, like, <laughs> like he's he's not gonna get a hold of us and let us know like how accurate we were. Uh, but the cool thing about No Dogs in Space is that you know the people we cover, they're even though we love their music and they're great artists, they're still just regular people, and they have the ability to listen to our show and to tell us how we did. And you know after the Screamers uh, series, uh, we actually got contacted by two former members of the Screamers who were able to tell us how we did.
0: Yeah, that was awesome. It was KK Baird, the drummer for The Screamers, and Jeff McGregor, the keyboardist of The Screamers. He was there temporarily, but he had a lot of stories to tell. I'm very excited about that.
4: Yeah, and he did contribute quite a bit to the band, as you'll hear during his interview that's coming up second.
0: Yes. But the first part, the first interview we're going to do is with K.K. Barrett and his wife, Trudy Arguelles, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, they obviously they lived there. They lived the whole L.A. 70s punk scene that they're going to talk about, of course, uh, going into the early 80s. And and we talk about the plunger pit mm-hmm. because Trudy's a plunger sister with, with all, you know, Helen Keller and, and Mary Hart and all the plunger sisters, pretty much like a very big party house, which lots of bands coming in and out, lots of stories that we talk about.
4: Yeah, I, I mean this is uh, what they really did for us and, and what we thought was so cool is they really, put, you know, they put us in the scene. Of course, like with the LA punk scene, like this really gives you such a good feeling for what it was like in those early days, the early, early days what it was like to live and laugh and love <laughs> <laughs> in LA in 19, you know in, in the late, mid to late 1970s
0: Yeah, we even talked to more about uh, how when KK and Trudy moved in together to the Canterbury Apartments, mm-hmm. which are very well known, which is kind of like the West Coast version of the Chelsea Hotel of that time. <laughs>
4: but somehow worse. How
0: does that happen? <laughs> it's amazing. They do things worse sometimes, but better. But worse is better. I don't yeah. know how to explain that.
4: Yeah, yeah. It's it's, uh, it's somehow uh, scuzzier than the Chelsea Hotel.
0: <laughs> yeah. And of course, uh, we talk about we get into the Screamers. Of course. We totally get into that in their shows and their brief time being a band that became legendary men. Many years later, we ask all about that stuff, which is really cool. And and we get a little bit into KK Barrett's uh like a little bit of after. The Screamers, because he became a set designer mm-hmm. uh, for uh, music videos. Uh, you know, starting with well, first it started with Population One, of course. The Screamers uh, were a part of, and then just for lots of music videos like Smashing Pumpkins and Beck, and and then he started doing movies with Spike Jones, like being John Malkovich yeah. And Adaptation, and he he was nominated for an Oscar <laughs> for her. No,
4: you just can't get over that.
0: That's I mean, it, that's for life. Yeah, that's the thing that's right next to your name, and that's so cool. And then he's just like, yeah, well, I lost. Yeah, And I, I'm not going to spoil it. I'm yeah. not going to spoil it. We had so much fun with them. Uh, it was a, a fun double date.
4: It really was. It was a fun Zoom date. <laughs> a fun double Zoom date.
0: Yes. And uh, so we'll get into it, uh, of course. And then afterwards, we will talk to Jeff McGregor in our second part of the of our interview series bonus episode. Yeah. Um, but first, we asked them both about the Wilton Hilton.
4: And that's where we start the conversation. Enjoy it, buddy. We'll talk to you all in a bit.
0: We
5: were trying to figure out the Wilton Hilton not just chronology, but who lived there, who didn't, because I know that we lived there for a bit when we'd go on tour and then come back from tour and not have a place to live because we'd give up our apartment, so we'd stay there for a while, but it was mainly Tommy and Tomato living there, and they lived there when the damned visited and stayed there. Brian lived in the closet, I think, when we were there too, and yeah. and then the Cramps lived in a building out the window across from us, a brick building, uh, simultaneous. And then in Flea's uh, autobiography, he calls that apartment building, which was the same one the Cramps lived in, the Wilton Hilton as well.
0: Oh.
5: <laughs> because they were both on Wilton.
0: Okay. Okay. That, yeah, that, that was one thing that we actually got wrong, thanks to Flea <laughs> and Anthony Kiedis. So yeah, you're yeah. right. Okay. Well, thank you for setting that straight.
5: Minor thing. And, and then Peter Case from the Nerves lived there as well at in 77 in that same other brick apartment building. Oh.
6: So, yeah, we think uh, there's a little they both called themselves the Wilton Hilton, but the, the house was actually the first place. And it was just the upstairs. The downstairs was uh, but the owners lived there, I guess, or other people that rented yeah. lived in the whole downstairs part. But it was a huge house, you know.
5: Have you seen pictures of it now?
0: I, yes, I Google Maps it, but it says it's like a like sort of a hotel if
5: if you put it into like for sale, there was a listing for it, and it shows all the rooms.
0: Oh yeah, oh, okay. I, I didn't go very far. I was just looking at how much it was worth. I don't know why I don't have <laughs> that not. kind of money.
5: He, he <laughs> <tried> research. Uh, <laughs> the
6: rooms don't look the same. I mean, I'm sure they're all nice. No,
5: nice. but I remembered the room that we recorded in, and the and the staircase where the the cramps took the picture. Mm-hmm. You know, psychedelic jungle and and stuff like that. I remember all the different rooms from looking at those.
0: And the ghosts.
5: hostile. Yeah.
0: That's one of our questions actually. (laughs) How haunted is it?
4: (laughs) Yeah. Did y'all have any like specific paranormal experiences from the Wilton Hilton?
6: I did. Well, um, I, one time, for some reason I ended up there at the end of the night by myself and I was coming up the back stairs to get in and I knocked on the door and said, is anyone here? And I heard a woman say, yeah, we're here or I'm here and I went in and nobody was there, (laughs) but there were also, you know, just lots of times when the record player got really loud or quiet.
5: And the lights went off and on and, and a friend of ours, Mary Paul, who's famous for taking Polaroids in the New York scene Mm -hmm. came back with us after we'd gone on tour in New York, came back with us in the van to California and, and she stayed there for a bit and there was a big lightning storm and and she said there was a cat that came through the wall across across the bed and left and
6: a blue face came through these pictures that were up of the screamers giant pictures that Jules Bates took of the screamers faces and she said a blue face came through tomato's face and toward her but the weird thing is that KK and I were in the other room at the same time and all of a sudden there was this weird electrical storm that I'd never seen and KK said I think it's ball lightning you know I never heard of it Yeah, and came in the window whatever it was I thought the palm trees were on fire outside. (laughs) It's
5: like plasma (laughs) lightning uh, you know a ball of of light it came through the glass and
6: and it lit up a chandelier that never worked it all lit up and we watched this and then it went through the room and then she told us the next day that this blue light came through.
5: So it could have all been ball lightning (laughs) static electricity or it could have been I've
0: never seen ball lightning before in LA. No. (laughs) my whole life <laughs> it's most likely ghosts yeah <laughs> it's a very Beetlejuice kind of house to I thought me all the
6: neighbors were going to be talking about it the next day and nobody knew anything about it there was no damage no burned up palm trees like i thought <laughs> so. and,
5: and then yesterday we were talking about um trying to confirm if the gtos had lived there and we think that miss mercy who came there for a party said oh yeah we used to live here." yeah
6: she told us that they lived there yeah. um she, or she confirmed it yeah. because she actually, when we moved later, KK and I moved to the Canterbury and, apartments, which you might have heard of, where everybody, you know, rehearsed in the basement and stuff. And Miss Mercy started hanging out there all the time with us, which was weird. Oh, wow. Miss Mercy, Fisher. Yeah. A lot of, yeah.
5: <laughs> A lot of good
4: So about the Canterbury, like, the Canterbury apartment seems like the, like the quintessential collection of Los Angeles weirdos. Like, who were some of the characters that, like, that walked the halls?
6: So many characters. I mean, because there were home, people that were on SSI money, you know, that talked to themselves all the time, and uh, they just got government money and paid the rent, and I don't know what else they did with it. But and then there were a lot of um, drug dealers and pimps, and that kind of freaked out when we moved in, and they, they're, you know, they threatened. Yeah. us like, don't come near my door. I got a gun, <laughs> and stuff like that. And we had these hillbillies. Well. I mean, I don't know what you'd call them now, but... Biker Billies. <laughs> they lived across us, this couple, and they said they'd, they'd talk about having guns, too. And then one day, KK was playing a Jan and Dean record, and, and the guy goes, I used to be in that band. <laughs> <laughs> so a buzzard.
5: Buzzard and Little Bit lived across.
6: Little, but she was the tough one, and he was a big dude, big biker. They were bikers, you know.
5: I think Rod Donahue, who was later in the Mau Mau's, was the first one to get an apartment there and says, Hey, we found this place for like $125 a month. And it's a, a block away from the mask, which we all hung out at. And then we found out that the landlord shot somebody in the lobby, like the week before we moved in, we said, ah, perfect place. <laughs>
6: <laughs> well, he, he, yeah, he, did, he, I guess got arrested or something. And they had a new landlord then that was, a. Uh, African-American gentleman named uh, the reverend. The reverend, the reverend. Reverend. And he had a weird religion where they never, they didn't believe in killing cockroaches or anything.
5: Mm -hmm. Um, Convenient for them. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't believe in killing insects. Or any. Yeah. Yeah.
6: But there were a lot of dead humans that ended up in that lobby. (laughs) And
5: Zolorex lived there. Yeah. So it was kind of a multicultural stopping place, you know, for a bunch of different people that, Needed a cheap place.
4: I guess speaking to to that, like you know, KK, you grew up in Oklahoma, right? For the most part, I I did time in Oklahoma. Did time I, in Oklahoma. I, I, <laughs> I was I was born in
5: Omaha and then moved to Springfield, Missouri. Then moved to Oklahoma City. So it like this early sixties, I was in Oklahoma City, and then to, until the beginning of high school, and then uh, I finished the time in Tulsa and then went to school in Stillwater. So I did about 15 years there, yeah.
4: So was Los Angeles at that, when you came to Los Angeles, was it shocking? Like, did you see anything like at first, like was there something that you saw that you're like, oh my God, I'm in Los Angeles now, this place is insane. Sunlight.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I left in December and I had a job, I had the highest paying job I could find at the time. I'd graduated from college and been playing in bands with Pat Garrett and Steve Allen to you know, pay my way and then I had another side job uh, laying stones, laying bricks like it was a brick mason because it paid well. Mm-hmm. But it was the middle of the winter and it's snowing and had gloves on that were soaking wet and mixing cement. I said, I'm out of here, you know, uh, brick drop. And <laughs> so I decided I wanted to go to New York because I thought that's where it was happening and that's where all the bands were that we liked in the art scene and at the time, I was uh, a painter and a musician at the same time, same as Pat. And California was sunny, and I didn't want to go to New York in the winter. I was overwinter, so. Well,
6: did it have something to do with your parents being?
5: Oh yeah, I, then I was in a car wreck. I was just straightening <laughs> my knee up just before I left, and my parents lived in Santa Maria at the time, and so I went out and stayed with them for a month while my knee healed, and then moved to Hollywood. So I also had a stopping point.
0: Oh, and uh, what about your guys' uh, first impressions on uh, Tomato Du Plenty? Like when you first met Tomato, I think you said in the Starwood or something like that?
5: Yeah, I think it was in the Starwood. So when I landed, I started going. It was The greatest thing about California was all of a sudden there was no place to play in, in Oklahoma, really. Uh, we were playing frat parties and, and uh, our local bar in a college town, but that was it. And out here all of a sudden there were shows you could go see. It was really only the Whiskey and the Starwood, but there were all these crazy double bills like uh, uh, John Mellencamp and John Cale, or Cheap Frickin' and Blondie <laughs> <laughs> or the Ramones and somebody. And so, so we'd go to these shows all the time and within the first month of landing in Hollywood, I ran into those guys, Tommy and Tomato and they were pretty done up, they were pretty pretty uh, costumed. Hmm. Uh, in, in what,
6: a, what did you think when you first saw them? I'm curious too. I said,
5: I, I, I gotta meet these guys, I wanna know them, you know. So, <laughs> so, so I just went over and, and introduced myself and and uh, they were both super friendly, uh, tomato even more so. And they were kind of like two peas in a pot at the time. They both had those big black wraparound glasses that you get after your eyes have been dilated. <laughs>
7: mm-hmm.
5: You know, just to, like to shield all the light out. and. Uh, they probably couldn't see a thing at night in in a nightclub but They looked good. (laughs) um, So we started talking and that's how I, and then I gave them, they said, Oh yeah, we've got a band. And I said, Oh, I, I play music. And I, as you learned in your episode, Mm -hmm. I gave them a tape and back and forth and like that. But they were very, very friendly, uh, very cheeky, uh, very uh, pop culture savvy and uh, very open. It just dawned on me yesterday that, in that time we were in the band, the, we never had an argument, there was no arguments in the band. Wow. Other than David being dismissed, um, but, right. but I wasn't part of that, and uh, <laughs> it was really, it was just like happy-go-lucky, it was kind of crazy.
6: Yeah, the early days, and you guys kind of mentioned that in, the, in your podcast too, how you know, everybody was just having so much fun, yeah. and nothing was serious. As soon as people started thinking they might be actually make a record or something, then it's already started getting weird and a little competitive, you know, it was so weird.
5: But I think, I think that was the magic of it. And that was why we thought, you know, like, oh, we're going to get to play at the whiskey for 300 people or hundred, hundred people, whatever it holds. And that was like the goal, or we're going to get to play the mask, which holds like 50 people. Uh, so it it wasn't beyond that. We didn't have higher horizons. There weren't uh, other opportunities really. So it was just really for ourselves. And Tomato was such a fun guy. It was always about fun all the time. And he's always making up stories. Like he'd, we'd walk through Hollywood and he'd say, ah, oh, that's where little Ricky was conceived by Lucy and Desi, you know, over in the- <laughs> <laughs> There he's just making up stuff all the time. And then he'd see somebody on the street and he said, Oh, that's that star. They used to be somebody, you know, and they're Mm -hmm. homeless or something.
6: But he was really good at faking you out. It was really hard to tell Yeah, when he was telling. I don't think that it was ever a truth, but it was hard to to tell. But
5: he's
4: very entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) So when you first went in to, to play with the screamers, like what, what was your first reaction upon hearing, like what they were already working on? Because it was, so strange and unlike anything else at the time. It
7: wasn't
5: that strange to me. Um, we had uh, recorded already with a synthesizer in Oklahoma, the first Korg synthesizer, then then there was a Moog around, and I don't think we had a drum machine, but we were playing along, we were very familiar with craft work and stuff like that, so it wasn't unusual to me whatsoever. And I had drums, and they'd been rehearsing with a drum machine. And so I said, oh, let's just keep it and play along with it, you know? And um, and I was, you know, came from an art background, so I was art damaged, it didn't make any, it wasn't surprising to me whatsoever, it was a concept. And and to me, the whole time, it was a concept. Of course, we were playing music and we were performing, but that's mainly what it was, it was a performance. So musically, the structure wasn't surprising. We were doing stranger things in Oklahoma, yeah, or equally, equally strange yeah. He was
6: in some pretty weird bands. Yeah, I mean, that's where he got his name. Even
4: yeah, <laughs> I mean, were you aware? At the, I mean, I know y'all were having like so much fun, but like in in that fun, like were you aware that there was like a movement developing around you that people would write books about thirty years later? How no? How could you?
6: Um, <laughs> I I thought I did have a weird inclination because I used to collect flyers like band flyers and everything. I became like a collector of. All this stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, because I thought I did have a weird feeling somehow inside that this was a special time. Like I knew I I thought maybe maybe all teenagers have this in their life. You know, Mm -hmm. this must be at at the same time. I thought this isn't going to come again just like this. And so I don't know, something in me made me collect all these Mm -hmm. things that, you know, because I was having so much fun and I wanted to remember it and remember the bands, you know. So
0: that's awesome. Do you still have them? Oh, yeah. yeah we do. Oh,
5: you do? She's your yeah. Oh,
6: nice. Do. But, who, but KK's the one that takes care of him. I just throw him in a small suitcase and he finds <laughs> him and says, this should be in plastic somewhere. <laughs>
5: <laughs> but I did, at the same time, uh, I think in 77, I found a book, uh, a Frank Zappa book in a thrift store, and it had a map of all of the spots. So this was a culture that happened just moments before ours. It was probably. 67, uh, so it's 10 years before ours, that had already kind of been forgotten, and yet a lot of the different places on this map were now repurposed in our scene for other things, whereas the people that were in that scene from 67 were no longer around and no longer following, you know, underground culture. Mm-hmm. But I was surprised that that was another parallel that was, well, there's a whole other culture that that lived below us, kind of like in Mexico City, you just keep digging down, and there's another culture, another culture, another culture.
0: Yeah, we're sinking, actually. (laughs) (laughs) We're falling into it right now.
4: So, speaking of those spots, like one of the, uh, Trudy, one of the uh, places that we found uh, that you'd lived at in the past was a place called the Plunger Pit.
0: Yes, she's a plunger sister.
4: (laughs) Could you explain to our listeners?
6: Sister, yes, we all are. (laughs) Me, Trixie, um, Helen, and Mary. And uh, let's see. Well, we named it, we didn't name it that actually it was Don Bowles who named it that he called it the plunger pit, but we named ourselves the plungers. We had, this is the weird thing. This is how kind of punk sort of started for a lot of us. Like we were goofing around in Mary's, Mary's garage when we were in high school and we took a picture with a plunger and we decided to smear. This is really smear dirt on ourselves
7: mm-hmm.
1: just
6: to make ourselves look as weird as possible. I mean, this is kind of like Looked
1: like coal. We
6: we put dirt on ourselves and we stuck our hair up and we put on men's shirts inside out, and we found these really ugly sunglasses that were like wraparound sunglasses and stuff that were not cool at all at that time, (laughs) (laughs) you know, for punk, but, and put them on and took pictures of ourselves and I was holding this plunger and so years later we said, well, let's, let's start a band like everybody else's and what should our name be? And then I, we saw that picture or something and said, let's be the plungers. Of course, we never played anything. <laughs> we were way too lame to ever practice.
5: <laughs> but that would have been the album cover. <laughs> but
6: we were still a band, and we actually did get on stage at the Elks Lodge or something. And I
5: haven't we, seen that picture in a while. Why don't we still have that?
6: Yeah, we did get on stage when we were really wasted one night and, and, and sang, sang some song. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so I thought we'd be his backing band, All Girls, you know? Mm-hmm. Like Robert Palmer, but before that. And we were always like, no, he's just going to teach us how to play. And then he's out. <laughs>
7: <laughs> Poor gaza
0: yeah. yeah, he gets kicked yeah. out but of the, everything.
5: <laughs> you know, like like the game of telephone, it's like we were trying to figure out how we knew where things were going on, you know, because everybody did or or most people did have a telephone. That's the one thing you got when you got your apartment. But nobody had answering machines yet. So you had to be by that telephone to hear about something going on and then figure out how to get there. And not that many people had cars either in Los Angeles. And so we'd take the bus or, but the plunger pit was one of those like vortexes where everybody would come before a show because it was right across the street from the Starwood and only a couple blocks up from the whiskey, down from the whiskey, that everybody would go and hang out either before the show or after the show and then you'd find out what was going on next Usually or what both. was going that night.
6: Usually both, people would yeah. come over in the day to see what was going on and we'd just try to like pick each other's brain, well have you heard of anything? Oh I saw this flyer, oh should we walk to the whiskey? It's you know like a couple miles, or three miles away from where we lived but the Star Wasn't was that right far. across. Yeah. The, but yeah whatever, We we might walk over there but you never really knew what the hell was going on in, in those days, you know? There was no LA Weekly or anything. I mean there was the LA Times and there would be like a, probably a little advertisement for some, maybe things at like the whiskey but who had the newspaper nobody had the newspaper no internet so it was pretty weird but you know someone would know of something and you just go there and somehow other people would come but it was such a small scene that I don't know grew
5: I, I remember I found the, uh, the 45 of uh, the boredom the Buzzcocks the first Buzzcocks thing and on it, it said 1657 Cherokee. And I go, what's that? And I realized that was the mask address. And then we wrote it down because something was going on there and we were supposed to go there. So that was like, oh. it was right on the, on the cover of the record. <laughs>
0: That's amazing that you guys had like these central points like the plunger pit and then maybe the the Canterbury apartments and the Wilton Hilton. Um, we also, because we read about the dam coming to LA and that being a big thing. I mean, also knowing like if you guys are trying to figure out, like, what to do that weekend, how did you get a, a British band from England <laughs> to come and stay with you guys? Uh, and, and how were they as guests?
4: <laughs> were the damned considerate.
0: I want to know if they <laughs> left the toilet seat up. Um,
5: we just found a picture of them, like, dancing or uh, hanging out in, in the kitchen in the Wilton Hilton. Um, but me and Trudy didn't live there at that time when they stayed at the Wilton Hilton. And Jake Riviera and Nick Lowe had come to the first they were in LA, probably for uh, Elvis Costello and or trying to trying to get a record deal for you know their record for stiff in America. And they came to our first show at the slash loft, which was really just a storefront, Steve Samuel's storefront. Yeah. The first screamer and, show. Yeah, the screamer show, yeah. And so that's probably where they made the connection. With, uh, with Tommy and Chimayda and then when they were coming through they said like, oh, we, we have this band coming soon or something like that, because that was in that was in May and they came in June, so it was right no, around. They,
6: they played in April, I think. Who? Down. Oh, maybe so. Yeah, actually, she's right. I was there. <laughs> okay. I went, to, I went to see that.
5: Okay, okay, yeah, so I was there, too. So, <laughs> so <laughs> well, we weren't together yet, um, so, I don't know how they made the connection, but I think it's, you know...
0: It's probably from Jake Rivera, and mm-hmm. then eventually Jake, I think, leaves them or something yeah. and to go with Elvis Costello and the damned are like, oh, we're, we're here with the Screamers. Yeah.
5: <laughs> or Lisa Pancher. There was a lot of people in, you know, in the connected little circle there.
6: Yeah, Blondie would come and stay at the Wilton, and they also always, like, came to the puncher pit, too, and hung out with us, so... That's right, because... And got their hair cut and stuff by Helen.
5: To <laughs> made a new... Uh, Blondie, or as everybody called everybody, like they called the Ramones, they called them the Blondies at the time. (laughs) Uh, I mean, when you were referring to somebody, and that's how, like, you'd say, like, oh, Chris Blondie. You know, you wouldn't say, you know, (laughs) Deborah Harry, everybody knew her last name. But if you didn't know their last name, the last name was the name of the band. (laughs) So uh, he knew them from uh, the beginning, the early days in CBGBs when he was doing performance art.
4: Well, speaking of venues, uh, like... I mean, you talked about, of course, talked about, like, you know, the, the dam plane and all that. And the dam played at the Starwood, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what was the vibe on an average night at the Starwood? Like, especially knowing that the notorious Eddie Nash ran the place.
6: <laughs> well, that's that was a little confusing in your podcast because nobody really knew him. I mean, KK did because they played there, but that whole thing came out after. Okay. <laughs> The murder the whole Johnny
5: Wad, and Eddie Nash thing, you know, the 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 seriousness of it and the deep danger came out later. We
6: didn't really know <laughs> I didn't know who worked think yeah. Pinky knew a couple of them because yeah. they got banned.
5: Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't we didn't get banned by him. We uh, whoever David, the, right?
6: It wasn't running Dave, we the club. hated him for a while. Yeah. <laughs>
5: but then eventually we, we were back in there. We just couldn't play there. But the other
6: yeah. thing about the <laughs> was like any band that played there at that time, this is the weird thing about the Starwood. I, because in L.A., you, cannot go, you can't get in places if you're underage, if they serve booze, unless they have special connections and serve a hamburger, too, like the whiskey and the Starwood. So they let us in, but they also did this weird thing right when punk rock started where they, I don't know why they did this, but they let bands have unlimited guest lists and i was the one that usually did the guest list because people would always show up at our house so i'd just say you want to go see them and put them on the list you know and it was just giant and we had all these fake names on it too in case someone showed up and once wasn't on the list so we would have like david bowie and stuff and give them <laughs> 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 some weird name but um yeah so the, that club was very strange because they'd let all basically we all got in free and so I don't know if they just wanted to fill it up. I don't know what they were they thinking because make it look exciting. If they were if they were trying to make money
5: off drinks, nobody had any money. Oh, we'd no. always we'd have drinks in the parking lot before we went in, you
6: know. I, I um, even had to bum a, a quarter off David Lee Roth when yeah. I was trying to I wanted to check my coat. They're like it's a quarter, I'm like a quarter. And then he gave me one. <laughs> Thanks, <Dave. laughs>
4: Well how did the Star compare to like the mask? Well, the Starwood was a proper nightclub. I mean,
5: it was it was where
6: my parents went there. It was like, it was an like old time.
5: PJ's. Like it was called PJ's, and Trini Lopez played there. And it was like a a discotheque. Both both the whiskey and the Starwood were discotechs. In fact, at the Starwood, you go into the first room, and the first room is like a dance club, and then you go into another room, and it's the live club.
6: No, first was the club.
5: First, of well, two different entrances. <laughs> if you saw the building, it's like a, like a, like an yeah. angle, and you could go in this way or this way, but yeah. I, they were
6: connected. And there was a back, a back room where, where the disco was. Which yeah, became less and less populated because everybody was watching the bands you know, and yeah. to watch. The so band. it
5: was the end of the disco era and the uh, and the go go era, not the go gos but the go go as you know, go go girls and mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So. It was a proper nightclub and, you know, it was obviously organized by hoodlums rather than, you know, like scruffy Scotsman like the mask was. So uh, the mask was not an organized club whatsoever. It was a basement underneath Al Goldstein's screw magazine, which was upstairs, always good nefarious things going on right next door to these places. And uh, it didn't have any permits. The bathrooms were horrendous, always flooding. And uh, it used to be a broadcast school, but it, all that was all gutted and, and taken out. that's
6: why you see those dots any picture where you see those dots on the walls where the tiles came off the acoustic tiles the, yeah it's just the glue dots so you know that's the mask when you're looking at old pictures the ones with oh, the dots okay
5: <laughs> so, so Brendan rented it uh, a, as you say just just to rehearse and then the bands didn't have a place to play because not everybody could get into the whiskey, even took a took us for a, a, a beat to get into the whiskey. And so uh, he would just start, start letting bands that practiced there perform there. And you know, it was like, so I don't the know. The big difference. In the beginning 20 or 30 people, and then and then later it kind of got bigger.
6: Yeah, the big difference was the mask was ours, like our clubhouse. Like when I went to the mask, it was such a feeling like you're going to see your family, mm-hmm. you know. And it was such a close-knit scene that sometimes we'd really bug people if they came in and we didn't know who they were. But, <laughs> but I mean, the, the Starwood was like, you're going out in Hollywood to a club, you know, and, and Mask was like our club
0: yeah. It's
5: like you're going to somebody's parents' basement or somebody's garage, but the parents went around.
0: Oh, that's always so much fun. Yeah. Yeah.
5: <laughs> Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks.
8: I
4: just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad
0: made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him.
1: Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost.
2: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks?
4: Uh, so we describe the screamers and in, in our series as performative punk. Like, would you say that was an accurate description? Like, was that kind of what y'all were going for?
5: Yeah, I think that's a that's quite a fair description. I mean, we're definitely uh, performative, hyper aware of uh, suicide. You know, pre James Chance, but James Chance is in that lineage too.
7: Mm-hmm. Uh, but
5: it, it wasn't like a uh, like a forceful confrontation with the audience. It was more like a push and pull with the audience, you know, like a, it
6: was playful,
5: a, a playful, friendly, but, but definitely the audience was part of the performance Yeah, it wouldn't work just cold by itself. Probably why we didn't record for so long because mm-hmm. it, it just came alive when there was an audience and, and you were able to, to do things with the audience. And punk was a, you know, it, it, it was more of an art band, but because of the time and the genre, uh, being labeled as such, and we didn't want to be called a new wave band, which we thought was like the Mamby Pamby way of saying like, oh, we used to be this, but now we're hip.
7: Mm.
5: You know, it wasn't mm. like Nouvelle Vogue. It was like, it was like a it was like, oh, we're kind of edgy, but not really, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so we embraced punk rather than that. So,
6: the thing, yeah, the thing was, when they first started calling it punk, we did not really accept that. We didn't like being called anything. We kind of just, we were excited about the punk bands, but we didn't even really call them punk bands at the time. And it just was, it was almost like it just happened at the same time in a weird way. Like people just started wanting to break out and do something artistic, I think, you know, right. do something different and be unique and try things. And then, then the only reason we started accepting that word punk is because there, then there was new wave, and the, and people would say, well, are you punk or new wave? And you'd be like, well, we're definitely not new wave. So I guess if we have to choose <laughs> <laughs> new wave, what meant you look like the '50s, and well, we look kind of like the '50s, but you know, it was kind of more um, nostalgic. Kind of, I don't know. I don't. Know. We felt like we were being, you know, much more creative than.
5: And at the beginning, all of the bands. When you think of a band like Blondie, and then Suicide, and then Television, and Richard Hell, and the Screamers, and the Go Go's, and it, the Dickies or the Weirdos, it, all the bands were much more the Deadbeats. They were much more unique unto themselves.
4: Yes. Mm-hmm.
5: And so it, we really were a bunch of art clowns. It was it was less, you know, trying to be like uh the satin jacketed uh rock gods that that we were kind of rebelling against but but hyper aware of and and liked some of them but at the same time we were more in the it
6: was almost like a cult in a way it
5: was it was more in the you know Bowie, <laughs> Roxy, Eno lineage right because
6: the thing ha- when everyone started cutting their hair off which i never did though really but it, then it became a thing like if someone came along and you still had long hair, it was like, oh, you're not really with it. <laughs> <You
0: know? laughs> and then they cut
6: their hair off and you'd be like, oh, look, they're just trying to fit in. <laughs> you
0: just can't wait.
5: <laughs> when all the guys moved from, uh, a bunch of people moved from Arizona, from Phoenix, and uh, they all had long hair and they started hanging out. And then they, this, this was Don Bowles and Rob Graves and, and the, the guys in the consumers, and they all had long hair like and then and then they cut all their hair off and it like really short like marine style and we called them cactus heads because they were from the <laughs> desert and they just were freshly shorn
0: <laughs> they're still not punk no. they're cactus heads <laughs> um, is there any uh, specific screamer show i know you you mentioned like all the 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 black plastic wrap and everything like that but is there any specific show for the screamers that sticks out in your guys' minds like that was like wow this is i'm never going to forget this
6: I can't say, I think they, they were all like that. That's the weird thing. Wow. I mean, they were, they were all just so fun and we all felt part of it. Like me and Robert Lopez from the zeros and a couple other people used to do a dance that went to the Punisher be Damn song. Mm-hmm. You know, we felt like we were like part of it. We were just out there watching, but it was so much like, you know, in your living room, even though it was in the whiskey or wherever that, you know, it was just a weird feeling, and, and I can't, there wasn't one show that was better than the rest. Oh. That I-,
0: I wanted to ask about, then, the Iggy Pop show that you guys were booked for, uh, and did anyone in the band address the fact that Iggy Pop was nude? Was he nude?
5: <laughs> when we arrived, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? He put on clothes
0: later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How did that whole day go when when you got there?
5: Uh, uh, well, first we were told don't bring any girlfriends and nobody else can come with us. And so we just showed up by ourselves with our scrappy equipment and said, Oh, you know, Jim, Jim's in the bedroom, you know, go meet Jim and there's Jim just (laughs) dangling forth (laughs) (laughs) and then so you can sit up here and it's this tiny room. It's about the size of this room. Um, and we just set up in half of the room and across from us is the plate glass window with the ocean outside, because it's right on the beach in in Malibu and a place he was renting, I think, Uh, for sure renting. And (laughs) then the audience was like we, you know, playing a birthday party, but there's only like seven people there. It was like Flo and Eddie and uh, (laughs) a a strange collection of people. Flo and Eddie, the Sales Brothers, and uh, Tony Kay, which I thought was, I recognized the name, because he was the first keyboard player in Yes, so <laughs> Yes, I was aware of other cultural music at the time. <laughs> That's an obscure thing to know, you know, yeah. and little did I know that he was going to play keyboards on the Idiot Tour when Bowie wasn't playing. Mm-hmm. So um, it's an odd collection of people, and and of <sighs> uh, uh, his manager at the time, Jimmy Silver or something, was there, and that was it. Do you think? You know? they,
6: do you think they were trying to see what's the next big thing in music?
5: I think they had. I think they had <laughs> Devo come out and play too. Oh,
6: they, yeah, he, like-
5: I think it was. It was such a uh, a popular time where he felt like he just couldn't go out and hang out, or they were they were trying to, you know, uh, sequester him a little bit from his bad habits in Los Angeles, his previous bad habits in Los Angeles. This was after the idiot, just before. Uh, Lost for Life. Lost for life. Yeah. yeah. Then we all went skinny dipping in the ocean afterwards and hung out and and then they gave us the check that bounced.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I knew it. I
7: knew it
5: bounced. <laughs> I wish I still had it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That is so icky. And I don't even know him personally.
5: He probably doesn't even know that happened, you know.
0: <laughs> that's true. We did a series on the Stooges and I read his book and then I had to cross-check that with what other people were saying and I had to pretty much throw away the book. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but that's great though. I hope you kept
4: the version that you liked the best.
0: I did. Print the, the legend. Of- yeah. Yeah.
4: <laughs> so speaking of strange shows, okay, where did the idea of playing a mental hospital come from? What was Tom's last name? Tom? Ayers. Tom Ayers. Tom Ayers.
5: So there's this guy, Tom Ayers, a record company kind of guy, uh, that I believe was the guy that shepherded Bowie around when he first came to Los Angeles in his long hair, uh, hunky-dory period. So Tom Ayers had this idea. He was hanging around with us and said, you know, I've got this show I want to do. Let's, let's play Camarillo. And go, really? And he says, Yeah. And let's record it. And so he arranged for a mobile truck, kind of a you know down and dirty mobile truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was 16 track recorder in the back of some uh, van. And we were gonna go and and record a record at Camarillo. Mm-hmm. This is like the place that Charlie Parker hung out in, the place they would go dry out at, or if you were a little off, then that's where you went. Uh, very similar to the cramps thing,
7: mm-hmm.
5: cramps show. And uh, we never knew what we were in for at most of these shows because we'd bring our own equipment. There was no PA except for what we had. And it was like a little high school auditorium uh, with stairs up each side and about three feet up from the audience. And everybody was far back in the room. You could just see them just outside the lights, little faces out there. And there's maybe, I don't know, 25, 30 people and we started playing and then they, they quickly told us, no, you can't record, we don't have permission to give you the audio of these people that are interred here or visiting. <laughs> <laughs> we were, we were pretty, pretty, you know, bummed about that, but we we're going to do the show anyway. And so we did the show and slowly they started coming out of the dark up into the light and then one by one, you know, like somebody would come up and kind of hang out and, and and give you the hard stare or start dancing. And one guy came up and walked up one side of the stairs and across the stage and tomato, had taken off his jacket and laid it down and he, he picked up the jacket like he was invisible and walked across the stage, walked down the other side of the stairs and disappeared in the back. <laughs> <laughs> and there was some dancing but it was like a couple people out there by themselves and uh, I would say it was well received, but you know, I think they out confrontation to us on
4: that one. <laughs> so, one of the most well-known recordings of the screamers is the the Target video performance at at Mabuhay Gardens. Uh, and yeah. by the way, I want to ask someone who was there: Is it Mabuhay or Mabuhay?
6: Mabuhay. We, we always
4: said Mabuhay. Mabuhay. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> it's, it's, it was a Philippine restaurant, yeah, and like yeah. So how did the Los Angeles scene compare to the San Francisco scene? Because we went heavily into the San Francisco scene in our Dead Kennedy series. I know you gave it preference to yeah. the Los Angeles scene.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, you're not the first person. You're not
4: the, first person. <laughs> the San Francisco scene has the history. I mean, we would go back and forth. I mean, there were there were petty,
5: petty jealousies, but not really. I mean, we knew those people. Um, we liked crime, even though crime were even more standoffish than we were. They were the <laughs> ultimate standoffish band. Uh, but we liked them. Oh, no,
6: but they were funny. Yeah.
5: They were so funny. And there was were connections funny. because uh, Richie and the nuns knew tomato from New York, and Penelope and the Avengers knew Tomato and Tommy from Seattle. So it was pretty incestuous. Yeah. But we didn't think that they had that many bands compared to and now and you're talking about the dead Kennedys. I mean, that was after us in yeah. a way. You know, so So after the San Francisco scene, yeah, maybe uh, because we know what happened to the LA scene, it became militaristic and, you know, Marine like, (laughs) Um, but it was just parallel scenes, you know, we loved that we had another place to go Mm -hmm. and we we went up there to play and, and they, those bands would come down here and play and uh
6: yeah we all it was all kind of the it same it wasn't place. really
5: competitive it's
6: true mm-hmm.
5: it was we were just so glad to have other people of they,
6: they all came to our house all, to the budget yeah. all the time and, you know. yeah.
5: yeah yeah that's great that's although so cool. i have to say in in retrospect that the few documents that exist of us uh that's my favorite document the not not only that it exists but i think it's a it's one of the better shows. We, we we weren't always that good. Sometimes we were a bit more symbolic because we didn't really rehearse. We would just go and play. But that was on, uh, we'd been playing all day at Target Studios in Oakland making recordings and then we'd play that show at night. And so we were actually kind of rehearsed for a change. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it was a good audience. And it was it was the best version of the band because it was the version of the band that had been together the longest with Paul Roffler. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. Very cool. shows. yeah. So it had a chance to be something.
0: And uh, yeah, so around this time, I guess, or the Screamer stage show gets a little bit more involved, right? You guys added some violinists and then Sheila Edwards. Uh, What made you guys uh, include Sheila into the live show?
5: So we we, we were getting a little restless and and, uh, we had a home away from home. The whiskey embraced us so much that we were able to do two shows a night, which means they'd clean the house they'd clear the house and have another audience come in. So we were doing two shows a night, three nights in a row. Like Thursday, Friday.
6: Selling out. Selling
5: out, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And um, I think we beat the Zeppelin record and then, and then Van Halen beat our record right afterwards for the most nights. Because <laughs> they were just right behind us. And so, you know, two shows a night and a lot of the audience would stay and be the same, they'd come back in, so we had to start thinking of different things to do, and and one of the things we did was one time we played halfway through the set, and we sat on the edge of the stage and took questions. And, <laughs> you know, real energy killer. But, <laughs> but, you know, just involved with the audience. And then another thing we did was uh, I had this idea that we we should try to do live dub, and uh, so we got these two saxophone players that we knew, Pat and Andy. And we were doing uh, one of, on one of the trips to San Francisco, we'd been given the uh, lyric sheet to uh, Darby crash's songs. to so the germ songs. And when we were reading them, we were so enamored with, with the song sex boy, which we'd never, we you could never hear the lyrics before watching them, but then you could read them and realize how good they were. And so we said, let's, let's do sex boy. And then, we learned the song and start playing it and then let's do it with the saxophones and do these stops where they'd be like sex and they're like sex 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 like echo like dub and then the saxophones would play through that and then they they would play and then we'd echo that and so we we're just doing experiments you know starting to get a little restless so we had the two saxophone players and then that was that cracked the ice to be open to other things and then Sheila was a girl that was always hanging around the scene. She was like a, almost a a, a fringe plunger, mm-hmm. um, but she was a little volatile. But nobody knew she had this great voice. And then we met Renee Dalder, who was a, a film director, a I, Dutch, yeah. Dutch film director. I knew
6: she had a great voice. I heard her singing. I actually told Renee to to check her out because he was looking for a good singer. He said he couldn't find one anywhere.
5: Oh there you go. So Trudy <laughs> discovered Sheila.
6: <laughs> Sheila singing along to a Roxy Music record and I was like, "Oh my god, you can really sing." And she said, "Yeah, my mom always told me that that's I could always make a living that way if nothing else." <laughs> you know.
5: So he was in, we were starting to toy with the idea of making a movie and he got involved with a set of those screamers shows at the Whiskey and we elaborated with the two violinists and Sheila, and Sheila duetting on the song She Frightens, which is always mislabeled on all the bootlegs as Through the Flames, yeah. because that was one of the many choruses. Yeah, and so uh, it was written out as, as a bit of a play, and Tomato was all up for this, because he'd done these stages little plays before, and uh, it expanded us, and, and uh, you know, why not? It wasn't like, It wasn't like anybody who's an official member or, 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 uh, we were definitely daring to fail at every corner, so.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And nobody else was doing it, so, yeah, why not? Yeah. Yeah. So, in Los Angeles, like, when did y'all start to notice that the scene was changing from, you know, a diverse group of people having fun to a gathering of rigid, angry dudes that were, you know, all about a specific punk dogma?
5: That, that's the other thing. Is is there were a lot of girls. It was very inclusive. I mean, there were tons of girls in our scene, and uh, lots of Latinos and you know gay straight. It was really mixed. And then all of a sudden, you notice that it was like angry guys, angry sweaty guys, and that was probably about the time that we dropped out. That was probably about 1980.
7: Mm-hmm.
5: And some of those bands were already starting. And you could just see that, you know, th- they felt like rock bands, like regular rock bands. And uh, but they became, you know, some of them became some of the, you know, earmarks of of hardcore and and uh, the punk scene as it's known better. I think it like Fear. Fear was kind of a crossover band. They kind of started at the end of the Mask days and then went on through the the next generation. And Black Flag was around, hanging around. Um, and Red Cross and then they kind of went on and carried on into the 80s I think
6: there was also started to become bands like from Rosemead and bands from um, middle class were from Orange County or something right yeah Fullerton I think and I think that's how it started because the, the younger bands some of them that were starting up that were just slightly later than the screamers you know then more people where they lived started hearing about it and coming to Hollywood and so that's why it became like an Orange County thing you know and those shows at the Whiskey were so huge like selling out twice a night that you know people were coming from all over so I think it just became more well known and then people outside the scene were there more often and they'd seen on TV that you you know you could ram into people and it's kind of fun if, it, if you're a punk go at a punk show and you know we didn't have video games so
5: Also the media was much more limited at that time I mean you had, you you know You probably saw exposure of the Sex Pistols on TV And the Ramones And the Ramones were probably to blame for all of this You know, uh, fast guitar drill stuff But but a lot of these bands didn't have a sense of humor So they weren't double-edged That
0: makes sense Yeah, that makes a lot of sense
5: (laughs) So they got the musician code down and the one two three four one two three four, but then 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 that was as far as it went.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're not writing actually funny songs, like because the Ramones. Right. The, that's what we said in our Ramones series. They just don't get enough credit for being funny.
5: Yeah, well, exactly. And there was they were such a concept. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so and there's nothing wrong with those bands, but it, it just I mean they, there's always uh, you know a, a ton of stray testosterone to go somewhere at that point in life that needs an end.
6: Well, the, the thing is, when we started and, you know, like I said, we didn't call ourselves punks or anything, but at the same time, we kind of knew this whole thing was, we did know this whole thing was going on in England and everything, and we were getting the Sex Pistols singles right when they came out as soon as we could, you know, from Terry. <laughs> but um, but we also knew there was this element of, you could be obnoxious, and that was such a freedom, because we grew up in, <laughs> in the 70s, and it was all about peace and love and everything, and just being able to be an obnoxious asshole was so fun. Yeah. So, <laughs> that was thing. and I think that, th- that the same thing happened with the Orange County people, they they love the aggressive part of it, you know, or whoever, you, not Orange County, but whatever came in later, only picked up on that part, really. Yeah.
5: <laughs> and also by that time, by 79 or 80, you started to have these pockets all across the country, mm-hmm. where it's like fair, parallel development of all these different places, like, like DC and the Fugazi scene and and then later you had Athens and Minneapolis and Portland and and so all of these areas that were just making music for their own scene you know um and so the code was developed differently in each place
0: yeah um also like later on you you know uh, KK you worked in like the biggest videos of the 90s of course like Smashing Pumpkins which I love and-, and Beck's new pollution which is one of my favorites and I just wanted to know I don't know if it's just for me but did you end up working with Beck because of working with uh, well with Beck's father maybe or his grandfather and Beck himself in Population 1 because there's a scene where you guys are t- <laughs> sitting right next to each other <laughs> while playing Oh, it's a friend of ours
5: yeah. And so His
6: Mother Bibby is one of our friends. Too. Oh. Okay. So, so we met.
5: We met Al first. Al Hansen. That's his grandfather, and he was a Fluxus artist, and he came to see us at the Starwood, I think, and he was just blown away. He thought it was so funny that we were doing Gloomy Sunday, and mm-hmm. irony laden. Al, and uh, so he was our manager for ten minutes. It's like <laughs> you, you want to be our manager? You need a manager? Yeah. Look, you can be our manager, and so he was our manager. I don't think anything ever came of that, but then we met uh, David and we met Bibby. David was uh, uh, Beck's father and, and Bibby's her mother and Bibby was from the Warhol days. She was at the factory and stuff like that. I think the youngest kid that was hanging around the factory. And so then when we started making a film, this, the population one with Renee Dalder, it began as a collection of short music videos. And one of them was called Ten Cents a Dance, with Sheila Edwards singing it with her big voice. And uh, and if you haven't seen it, you should definitely check out Armies of the Night, which is a song that she did, which is great. Uh, also from that same collection. I think it's on the Population One DVD. And and so Ten Cents a Dance is an old song that Sheila or Renee had found. And it's kind of like It's like a pickup place, you know, like you you can dance with with people, you buy a ticket and you dance with people for 10 cents. Mm -hmm. used to be a real thing in the 20s. And we put a fake band together of myself on drums. I did the sets, but myself on drums, Steve Huffstetter from a band called The Quick on guitar, uh, uh, Guilty from a band called The Rhythm Pigs on bass, (laughs) and uh, no, no, and David... David Campbell playing viola Beck's father and then Beck on accordion and Beck is 8 or 9 at the time
7: yeah <laughs> and,
5: and David was involved with recording these songs that we would make the the uh, videos for we built I built this recording studio and sound stage for them as a as a job cuz I needed a job and I, something I could do and so I was kind of involved in building the studio. And then when we started making the music videos and this is before MTV, this is like three years before MTV.
6: Everybody would do whatever they could, yeah. whatever talent they had. Yeah. And, <laughs> and
5: so I, I asked Renee who's going to design the sets and he said it didn't know. And I said, I will. And so that was the beginning
4: of my career signing sets. And now you've been nominated for an Academy Award.
0: For life. (laughs) For life. I I have been saying that all day. That's a thing for life.
5: Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I finally failed upward, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, when I started doing a lot of music videos and then when somebody I was working with, uh, I hadn't seen Beck in a long time and I hadn't really discussed this with him, I didn't really know him, but then he was getting big I think Trudy had gone to a couple of his shows and yeah yeah, we'd seen him
6: we we videotaped it yeah that's right I wonder what happened to that
5: yeah Uh, like
6: one of his early shows it's it's in the archive we gotta find it it's (laughs) in the garage
5: (laughs) when he used to play with just a a guitar and a leaf blower yeah
6: (laughs) he played at Mr. T's bowling alley but yeah
5: so so then Loser had come out and he'd, he'd become successful and then he was on his next record and his third record second record and I was asked to do the video and so yeah I did the video and then and then I found a copy of that Ten Cents a Dance video Mm -hmm. and gave it to him to remind him, oh yeah I haven't seen this in so long. My dad showed it to me when I was a little kid and I can't you know I barely remember being there.
0: Oh that's (laughs) so cool. That song is so catchy. Yeah. I I love it. So (laughs) The Sheila Edwards version that is.
7: Yeah.
4: So there's a new Screamers release coming out on Superior Viaduct mm-hmm. Records in March. Where are these recordings from and, and why are they being released now?
5: Well, they're being released now because uh, Steve from another incestuous connection here, Steve from Superior Viaduct is the husband of Penelope Houston from the Avengers.
0: Oh, oh, wow. And I love got,
5: Superior Viaduct Records. I love that label. He's got an excellent label with great packaging, extremely eclectic and of course the people have always wanted to put this stuff out and nothing would happened. And then I, uh, unfortunately there was a long time kind of before YouTube when nobody could find this music anymore. And so uh, there was a friend that uh, was a big screamers fan. And I gave him some cassette copies of the songs to enjoy, but not to make money with and Mm -hmm. bootleg, which is, you know, to share, but not, not for profit. And of course, that's exactly what he did is he bootlegged it to death.
0: Oh man.
5: (laughs) And so fine, and this was, but but I knew that there wouldn't be a legacy unless things were passed around. So I thought that was fair. Oh yeah, there was also a terrible whine on these tapes. Like a really like, and I thought that'll that'll kind of protect it. I
6: remember KK, said to me, it's okay if he puts it out and has
5: this big noise on it. I thought he would never, nobody would ever put it out because it had this noise, but. Then uh digital you know correction techniques came along and it was easy to to remove that and uh that's what they did. And so then YouTube came along and and the presence of the band started growing from the target clips.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And I was, so Steve kept asking, are there any, you know, what are the recordings of the screamers? What to what extent do they exist? And I said, Well, uh we only recorded properly twice, three times once at Paul Rossler's garage, which are called the Friar Hotel Recordings, mm-hmm. which are another set of demos that have come out bootleg many times. And that was the one with hums that was removed. Oh. And then the first time are these demos that recorded at the Wilton Hilton in the bedroom with Pat Garrett, who was my partner in crime and creative endeavors from Oklahoma.
7: Mm-hmm.
5: We recorded the same way we recorded the early Danger House stuff and then we recorded uh, the same method that and the same machine that we did in Oklahoma because the randoms record, the first side was actually recorded in Oklahoma. And so those tapes have been sitting around forever and I said, I know I've got them somewhere. Let me find them and, and Steve encouraged me to find them and I dug them out to find the quarter inch mixed stereo master, which we'd actually made. Of all the other things that we recorded, there was never any final, you know, mix down or it was just recorded to four track and there was a cassette made or something like that. So this was probably the most legitimate uh, document and much better than any of the bootlegs that come out. And so I said, Steve, let's do this. And then Steve, uh, we reached out to Tommy and got Tommy involved, which I hadn't talked to in forever and uh, he gave his blessing and that's how they came to be. So to finally correct this, even though people have probably heard these songs, but sonically this will be much better. Yeah. Um, we decided to put
4: it out. Oh, I can't wait to hear the whole like the, yeah. the I've heard Punisher Be Damn that's been that the one song that's been released so far and it sounds amazing. It
0: sounds like you guys just put it out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like what's this new amazing thing now? I, I love the fact that this is finally coming. And it was actual random timing that we decided to do a series on the screamers and then finding out, oh my gosh, you guys are coming out with new stuff.
4: <laughs> <laughs> hey mom. First things
8: first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help. And yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell.
1: Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Pulling
2: up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra.
4: I guess, I mean, the last question is, uh, I guess it's the question that everyone always has with the Screamers. Was there any one big reason why the Screamers didn't record an an album or was it just a bunch of little things? Um,
5: I think we just never got to that point. We just kept moving forward. I know that there were some dalliances, like we were good friends with Joe Smith's son. Joe Smith was the head of Warner Brothers Records. He came to our shows all the time.
7: Yeah.
5: Um, Captain Beefheart came to our show with the Roxy. I mean, like strange audiences. Yeah. And uh, not that he was gonna help us get a record deal, but <laughs> there were little record deals around or 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 you know, like suggestions of them, but they weren't very good. It wasn't, it wasn't anything splashy. It was it was kind of making us like an also ran like, i we're gonna lump you in with all of this. Mm-hmm. And we always kind of wanted to be. Special. Separate special, <laughs> and that's where the video line came up with.
7: Mm-hmm. But in
5: the end, it became true. We only exist truly <laughs> in, in video. In the end, thanks to thanks to the target work, and so uh, it kind of like hit it and quit it, one it and done. You know, it was it was not a bad way to to exit a legacy. I often wonder, you know, would we have become. Uh, Craftwork, work or we, we, would we have become Depeche Mode, you know?
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. That's, that's part of why I found y'all so fascinating is that like, it's, the, it's like the best historical, like, what if in, like, punk history. Like, what if? What would they have done? You know, where would it have gone? How would music have changed? I'm sure
5: we would have kept changing. That's, that's a given uh, because what, of what we were playing with towards the end and quite restless and, and inquisitive. Uh, but who knows, you know? I know that a lot of the record companies that listen to the stuff said like, uh, you know, it's like, well, I don't know, it's not very musical, it's not melodic. Uh, even Renee said we weren't musical. Um, and he was supposed to be on our side, but he was kind of <laughs> in it for himself. <laughs> um, but, you know, in the context of what was what was out and what was being successful, I mean, Richard Hell was not successful. The Ramones legged out a long career, but I don't think they had huge record sales. Mm.
7: Mm. So
5: it wasn't really a recorded medium. It could have been. It it, it could have gone on to be a live. Yeah, but they were much more mainstream pop. Both of yeah. those,
6: yeah,
5: um, with melodic voices, and so.
6: They would have had to have side jobs.
5: And, and as often said of Tomato, it, you know, he, he was our singer, but to me, he was our front man. And I would, I there's a lot of people that can sing very well, but aren't very good front people for bands. But I would trade, if you're playing live, I would trade a front man for a singer any day.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. we had a
5: great front man.
0: Yes, absolutely, you guys were all great. It was, yeah. It's really fun, it's one of those things that when we were talking to, uh, I, I think your friend Kent, He's like, yeah, you just had to be there. Yeah. And we're like, thanks, Kent. Thanks a lot.
4: <laughs> that was that was the ultimate, and that was also like our ultimate, uh, I guess, at wrap up with with the screamers just finally deciding. It's like, yeah, we fucking missed it, man. You just have to like, be there.
0: That's <laughs> what you gotta do. There's, there'll be a new there maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Eventually, hopefully. <laughs> yeah,
4: eventually, there'll be a new one. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, thank you so much, guys. Really,
4: thank y'all yeah. so much. This has been <laughs> so much fun. Cleared
0: up so much stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so many arguments we were having at home so
4: but
0: But this completes our story a little bit more at least yeah
4: it really does
0: yeah very cool
4: well there you have it that was fucking great i know (laughs) it was so much fun it was so cool to talk to people who were actually there
0: and they're so funny
4: and to people who remember it yeah (laughs) (laughs) but i was like man i took a lot of drugs i kind of remember it but not really like they they have a very a very clear memory of what happened and it was really cool to talk to people who don't see it through a drug lens
0: yes yes as far as we know (laughs) thank you Judy no I think they're fine yeah I think they're fine we don't have to test them for drugs But next up next we got Jeff McGregor The keyboardist for the Screamers I mean he was in the Screamers for a brief time But Mm -hmm. he actually had some very important Input in the Screamers
4: Yeah very important contributions
0: Yes and then we talk about the Snot Puppies Which is the band he formed afterwards he played bass in And they sound great actually I, I actually really do enjoy Snot Puppies a lot And the name.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And the cool thing about talking to Jeff McGregor, like the perspective that we're getting here, you know, the perspective we got from KK and Trudy was, you know, people in their 20s, you know, essentially adults trying to make their way through the scene. Jeff McGregor was a teenager during these years. He was essentially in high school. So we really get it's a it's a really interesting perspective of the time.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, because he talks about Black Randy. Yeah. I'm like, you were a teenager hanging out with Black Randy? <laughs> if you guys remember from The Screamers, he was a frontman for Black Randy and the Metro Squad, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a fun band, which a bunch of people would come in and play and sing in. And he was also co-founder of Danger House Records that we talked about a little bit. And uh, he, quite the local character mm-hmm. who unfortunately died in 1988, I think, from alcoholism or Everything. It was not a surprising death. You know, no. But <laughs> memories of his shenanigans live on for sure. And uh,
4: yeah, and we're going to be playing a Snot Puppy song because they just released a 45 single last year on which label was it?
0: No Matrix Records.
4: On No Matrix Records. Uh, that's available. It's out there. It was produced by Gaza X back in 1978. Yes. Yeah. And so it's a great artifact of the time and it's a great fucking song. Uh, so let's get into our interview with uh, Jeff McGregor.
0: All right. Thank you so much for talking to us today. We really appreciate oh, it. Oh, sure.
4: Yeah, yes. it's my pleasure. Well, uh starting off here, I, I guess our, our first question when we interview people like, you know, that have been involved in, you know, bands that we've covered, our first question is, how'd we do? Yeah.
8: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you did very well. I you, you spent a lot of time on the prehistory and I, I guess that's important. Mm-hmm. Like I said in my letter, it's just it's really nice to see somebody paying any attention to the L.A. scene. And I thought, you know, everything you said about that was uh, pretty spot on.
0: Oh, thank you. No, I loved it. (laughs) Thank you very much.
4: So what was your first experience with punk back then?
8: Uh, My first experience with punk? I don't know. I guess I read about uh, the Velvet Underground and Cream and I bought the Live 69 and what was my first experience? I guess the first time I saw uh, English punk pictures was in uh, NME. Probably that same thing you have referenced that before. I think with picture of Sue Catwoman that actually frightened me <laughs> that I saw in uh, <laughs> I was in uh, Licorice Pizza in Santa Monica or in Brentwood, and uh, I picked up the NME with I was I was in there with my piano teacher, and I picked up the magazine and I looked at Wow, that's something. So I I was uh, intrigued by that and what was my first exposure oh well, you know i went to licorice pizza sunset which was my local record store and i picked up slash and uh i decided to put an ad in slash so i uh, had a picture taken and had my cousin who's a printing broker set the type for me and i i went over to that place that you called a storefront i would have called it a defunct auto body shop Uh, (laughs) because you know it's in the area with the auto body shops and there was like a parking lot in front of it it just looked like an auto body shop it was like a locked space and I took them my ad and they printed it and I think that was part of what got me into the screamers but the main thing that got me into it was Pleasant Gaiman because she and I were in the same class at Beverly High oh very uh, cool
0: oh I'm sorry I was going to ask uh what was it like being in high like a high school kid in the middle of all this, because apparently you're very young during this whole first wave of punk.
8: Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was 17. I was the only boy that was into it for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) The girls were a little uh, ahead of us, and like Pleasant was, was way into it before I got involved. And I didn't really know her that well. It's funny, we took a class together. We took music appreciation together. From Luther Henderson III, he taught music appreciation. And uh, one time he left the room. And so I went up to the front and I started playing the piano. And I played Five Years by David Bowie. And Pleasant thought that was terrific. And I think she just decided that I needed to be in the scene somehow. (laughs) And uh, we went out. After class, we went to the phone booth and she called Darby and I had a little conversation with Darby, and that never amounted to anything. But she kept me in mind. You know, she, she was like, oh, we're going to get this guy into this thing. And uh, the first time I met Tomato, I spent my lunch hour at Liquor's Pizza, and I was going back to uh, my job at Warner Brothers Music. I worked there over the summer, and then I wheeled my way into a position, uh, like as an office boy for the lawyer there. And I was coming back from lunch, and Tomato and Pleasant and, and a couple of other people, I don't remember who else, was sitting at power burger which was between <laughs> licorice pizza and my job uh, and they were sitting outside and they, they hey jeff come over here and i met tomato and we had a nice conversation and i gave him my phone number and i got a call from tommy and i said well why don't you come over to my parents house for dinner <laughs>
7: <laughs> that's great <laughs>
8: so he did you know he was very nice you know he was wearing a like a, a black jeans and a black sport coat and a black shirt and he had uh, like straps from a, a pair of boots that he put around his neck. It was very, very stylish. And his mm-hmm. hair was straight up. And we sat and we had dinner with my parents. <laughs> uh, and then we went in the back and I showed him how I played piano. I, I showed him that I had a Fender Rhodes mm-hmm. and that I played a little piano. Uh, and he thought that was terrific. He said, "Well, you have to come over and do, to the Wilshire Fine Arts Center." And so I think there were two things. That made me attractive to them in the beginning, and one was that uh, I had a car, and <laughs> the other was that uh, I had a Fender Rhodes, which David had a Fender Rhodes, and and his was apparently more fucked up than mine because uh, it distorted by itself, and I had to use a distortion box to get mine to distort. It. But how did I get involved? I guess that's it. You know, I, I went to see uh, Iggy Pop, and I saw the Germs there. You know, they were wearing their Germs t-shirts, their yellow t-shirts with germs on it. And I think on the back it said, we're called the Germs because we make people sick, but that might've been something that, the, the, like a slogan that they had. Yeah.
7: yeah. Um, <laughs>
8: <laughs> which is a pretty good slogan, you know, that's the uh, clues you right into the name. Of course.
4: So like when you first heard the Screamers music, what did you think of it? You, you know, I first heard the Screamers music. We, I'm looking at this timeline from synth
8: punk, Mm -hmm. And it looks like, you know, uh, David was still in the band when they approached me. So sometime between the, the Iggy Pop Party and the whiskey on the 8th of August of 77, I met them and they told me that they were playing at the whiskey and I had something else going on that night and I got there. Oh, I was working in an ice cream parlor. I was working at Baskin
4: Robbins. (laughs) But you and Henry Rollins both. All you guys are all working in ice cream parlors.
8: (laughs) He he worked at Baskin Robbins too, huh? He worked at Haagen-Dazs. He was a manager. I I didn't even know they had stores. Okay, so there you go. But I got there late and, and I just heard I'm going steady with Twiggy from outside. Uh, so that was the first time I heard Screamer's music. I didn't really hear it until I got to rehearsal. You know, <laughs> until I got to the first rehearsal. So yeah, I was—I uh, uh, mean, it had been described to me, but I really didn't know what it sounded like. So, you know, I was just happy to be asked, I guess. <laughs> I don't know.
4: Well, what was that, like, from your perspective, like, what was an average Screamer show like?
8: Well, there wasn't really an average Screamer show, and that was kind of the, the best thing about it. They tried to make every show different. They tried to do something different, uh, like they'd add a song, or you know, you you read about the scaffolding behind us and mm-hmm. uh, and the the visqueen in front of the stage, the black plastic, you know. So they they tried to make every show an event, every uh, stand at the whiskey w- was like an event. So yeah, there wasn't an average show. They were all and, and I'm you know I look at the timeline and I remember you know little things about each show. Like I remember missing the sound check in San Diego. <laughs> and they were mad at me for that <laughs> but, uh,
0: Were you a part of the uh, Camarillo uh, Mental Hospital show? I okay. was at the Camarillo show, yes um, And uh, that was
8: very interesting And, and you, you said about having bands play at, at, at mental hospitals It is a really good idea Yeah um, <laughs> uh, Because, I mean, they when, whatever they thought about it You know, there were people from the outside world paying attention to them Yeah You know, and that was just really nice. Uh, One thing I remember about that, there was a woman in front of the stage, you know, rubbing her chest and saying, punk rock, punk rock over and over again. (laughs) That was- uh, That's great. I remember that, you know. Um, God, the the first weekend was a a real uh, head turner. The the two shows at the mask, and then two shows in the Mabuhay right after, one after the other. And I didn't drive up to San Francisco, I actually flew. Hmm. Uh, and I can't remember if it was Tomato and me that flew, or because uh, I think KK was uh, driving somebody's car, driving with somebody. But uh, yeah, I flew up to San Francisco. It was it was a wonderful experience. You know, I had an idea that I was going to make music of my own, so I never really joined the band. Mm-hmm. And and so that when we played a show, I would get paid, and everybody else put the money back into the band. You know, and I, that just seemed weird to me. Um, but uh, you know, because I, I I didn't need the money. You know, I was living with my parents. I, just, you know, <laughs> They're I wasn't paying rent or anything. You know.
4: Well, I guess that was the one of the questions that you know the the so from the very beginning they were pretty upfront about the, the temporary nature of uh, your place in the band.
8: I was upfront with them. Oh, they weren't upfront with. They, they, I mean, at a certain point, I think they might have wanted me to stay. I mean, there were certain things that happened that made me think. And when I look back, it's like, oh, they were trying to get me to stay. Um, like they gave me the lyrics to the girl in the car with the glasses and the gun, and told me to come up with music, and I did everything but the pink thing in between the the chorus and the and the next verse. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was Tommy. But yeah, they so they gave me a song to write, and they also they said come up with an intro for 122 hours of fear, and I came up with that intro that you've heard.
7: Wow! Um,
8: Whoa!
4: That
7: intro is amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) It was an assignment, and I did it.
4: One of the things that KK wanted us to ask you about one of the shows was the Artists mm -hmm. and Lawyers Ball at the Elk Lounge.
8: Oh, that's very good. Yeah, I was going to get to that. (laughs) Oh, Uh, good. Because um, that was basically the turnover from me to Paul. Paul started coming to rehearsal after they picked him to be in the band. I don't know why they, it took him so long to find him because I mean, you know, he was around, but when he was going to replace me, he would come to rehearsal and I would show him what I was doing. You know, he, he went on to do much more interesting things with the music than I did because he, he's a wonderful keyboard player. Yeah. But the artist and lawyers ball, I played the first half of the set and then I went down into the audience and he played the second half of the set.
7: Aww. Uh,
8: so that was that was, and then I went I went ahead to do the last show with the whiskey, my last show with the whiskey with a sinus infection. I had like you know it's like 102 temperature. You know, <laughs> uh, so it, that was a very interesting show, you know? yeah. And that was that was my send off, you know. But uh, so yeah, the artist in Warriors ball. I'm glad that I'm glad he pointed that out because yeah,
4: uh, he's actually got a picture.
0: Yeah.
8: Oh, it's a picture. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Of, of, of who? You, <laughs> of you. He wants to send it to you. Yeah. Oh, okay.
4: <laughs> <laughs> playing or just being there? Uh, I think you're playing. It's hard to tell. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was the second time at the Elf Lodge,
8: at the Park Plaza Hotel. The first was the uh, the benefit for the mask, and then the Artist and Lawyer's Ball. It was in a different room. It was in a small room in the hotel.
4: What was the benefit for the mask?
8: Oh, that was... Uh, um, that was a big show.
0: Was it when the the masks were uh, shut down by the uh, by the, the the fire chief? <laughs>
8: I'm I'm not sure. I don't. Know. Maybe he needed legal help. I'm not sure what what the story was. Why they needed to have a benefit. Uh, I didn't go there very much. I went there once to try to you know get a band started. I you know there's some people there that I contacted to rehearse with before the screamers, and then I played those two shows. And then I played there with the Snot Puppies. And that's probably the only times I went to the Mass. So I didn't really know what was going on.
4: Speaking of the Snot Puppies, Snot Puppies, that was your band after The Screamers. Let's play a little clip for, uh, for the fans. This is a TV tantrum. So, what was the origin story of the Snot Puppies? Uh,
8: the origin story of the Snot Puppies. Let me see. Stu and Dan started writing songs together, and they said they wanted to get a band together. So we, you know, we found Ricky, and I was in a, a sociology class with Kevin Hunter, and he sort of came along, and we rehearsed in Stuart's mother's warehouse. She had a, a furniture business, and and we rehearsed in that in a warehouse, which was. Um, near where city hall in Beverly Hills, uh, the origin story of the snot puppies. I guess that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) All Uh, right. (laughs) By the way, uh, uh, a black Randy story.
7: Oh, Uh, please please. do.
8: Thank you. It's not a, it's not a salacious story. Uh, uh, I, you know, I met him and I was talking to him uh, and I said, the snot puppies wanted to do a show. You know, so you know, with Black Randy, I said, "Well, let's put together a show, and we'll we'll find a hall, and we'll put together a show." And he says, "Well, that's great. So why don't you give me a hundred dollars, and I'll see if I can push the show." <laughs> <laughs> so I gave him a hundred dollars, and I never heard back from him <laughs> <laughs> until until maybe a year later, maybe maybe you know, maybe six months later, maybe a year later. I saw him at a party. He says, "Oh, I have got your money." And he actually gave me the (laughs) hundred dollars back.
0: That's why you said Black
8: Randy. And whatever you think about Black Randy, the music was great. And to see the show was great. And it was exquisitely bad taste and and he would get canceled today. But uh, (laughs) at the time it was, it was just hilariously funny. And one of my favorite lines in all of music was from that song, San Francisco on the Black Randy album. Mm -hmm. Uh, all the drugs I took did not get me high. Till I met a guy, Mabuhai. He was very nice. He gave me some green pills. And this is the line. We saw the Avengers and part of the Dills. <laughs> That was there's just something so realistic about that. <laughs> like like someone would actually say that. You know, and I probably heard somebody say something like that. You know, we saw X and part of the deadbeats, you know. But, uh, you know?
0: <laughs> That's great. Oh yeah, Randy
8: Brandy awesome. was a special guy. Oh, he was also he worked in a boiler room uh you know, doing um uh work for a stockbroker and uh he he was just he was a wild guy. He was he was uh, and really uh, apart from taking a dump in somebody's purse, he was very sweet. <laughs> <You
0: know>? <laughs> <laughs> he just wanted to see what would happen, yeah. <laughs> which is an interesting experiment already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: Last yeah. thing we wanted to know is that we saw on the, the Snot Puppies website that what is this about Rob Reiner mentioning the Snot Puppies on the Tonight Show?
8: Uh, I'm not really too familiar with that part. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I know that, you know, Rob's uh, younger brother, Lucas, w- uh, was in our class. We, you know, I was in a band with Lucas, too. So he knew about the Snot Puppies. You know, Lucas would come to the shows. And I guess he told his brother about it. Uh, and he probably said, uh, you know, my brother's in punk rock and there's this band, the Snot Puppies. That's all I know. The, the other thing was that um, uh, Todd Rundgren uh, was playing at the Roxy when we were playing at the Whiskey, the Lobotomy Night Show at the Whiskey. And he mentions the stop Puppies from the stage. And it's actually on Back to the Bars. He, mentioned, yeah. he yells to some guy, oh, it's not puppies to you, buddy. You got to listen to Todd Rundgren music in order to get through this. Of course. Uh,
4: but uh, <laughs> I like uh, it. <laughs> I couldn't
8: find where he said it.
4: Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. We yeah, really appreciate you oh, sure. talking to us. Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you. Thanks, Jeff. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, bye. Okay. And that's it. Yeah. And that's it. for season one. Yes. Are we really done? <laughs> we're, we're absolutely 100% done with season one until season 1.5 yes well season 1.5 that's going to be coming here in about six weeks or so uh of course you can follow our instagram
0: yes at no dogs pod check it out for any kind of latest news coming from us of course <laughs> uh, what we're going to do in the future which is actually pretty soon we're already started working on it like two days ago
4: yeah we, yes we absolutely have already started working on it and you know and it's a big big story uh but it goes from punk into an entirely new genre of music that isn't necessarily going to be what we cover in season two but it's a fascinating story that that we really wanted to tell and it's a big big story so we're going to need a lot of time uh to put it all together uh so thank y'all again you know like we've already said thank y'all so much Uh, for coming on this journey with us on season one. Uh, Thank y'all so much for, you know, understanding that we need six weeks to get ready (laughs) uh, for season 1.5. And then thank you in advance uh, for coming along with us. Uh, for season two which will be coming shortly after one point yeah. five man and, and of course if you want a no dogs in space t shirt go to lastpodcastmerch.com. we're gonna have a new t shirt coming up very soon that's gonna be fucking great yes uh, it's gonna be so cool
0: I know uh, yeah
4: but we got yeah we got a new t shirt that's I gonna be for sale soon I'll let you know. Okay.
0: <laughs> we'll let everyone know on No Dogs Pod yeah. The Instagram.
4: Yeah no no dogs pod. Uh, it's gonna be like it's a cool like 80s punk style. So you guys are gonna fucking love it. and of course uh we have our band we're still gonna do the bands all throughout like you know we're never gonna stop doing bands at the end of the show
0: yes if you're a singer or a songwriter y- you play in a band or you're just a solo musician y- you're just a guy and your or a girl in your living room it doesn't really matter you could be anything and if you have music recorded that you'd like us to play at the end of an episode uh you could send it to no dogs at gmail.com and uh, we'd love to hear it and we'd love to play it of course or any any kind comments or anything you want to write to us at all you can always write to us at face at gmail.com yep and that'd be really really cool we really appreciate it and uh who's the band?
4: uh the, well do you want to take the pronunciation for this one no they, uh, I, would, <laughs> I want i want to see you try you want to see me try yes. okay they are a, a punk band out of austin texas they are called mujeres Podritas.
0: Actually, that's perfect.
4: <laughs> really? That's Thank perfect. you. Thank you very much. Yeah, good They're job. fucking great. Uh, I'm really loving this band. They uh, just released uh, a new album uh, on Bandcamp. It's called Muerte en
0: Paraíso? Paraíso.
4: Paraíso. Okay. Muerte en Paraíso. That's pretty good. I've been paying attention when you talk to your mom.
0: (laughs) Man, that's, wow. You really pick up a lot.
4: Yeah, you know I have that problem where I just, I can't, if there's words being spoken around me, I can't help but listen to them. (laughs) Well, yeah, this band's uh, fucking great. You can find them. That's spelled mujerespodrida Bandcamp com uh if you want to support them directly uh and buy the album directly from them remember you know all these bands that we cover uh most of them don't have labels and a lot of them uh, actually none of them can tour right now uh so these bands are really relying on stuff like Bandcamp to get a little bit of uh, income so if you have a local band that you want to uh, support or if you want to support this band which we very much encourage you to do uh you can always give on uh, a that's mujeres podritas. Bandcamp. Wow, gets Com.
0: <laughs> I'm so turned on. <laughs>
4: oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I'll remember that. <laughs> Alright, thank y'all so much for listening, and we'll talk to y'all in about six weeks. Don't forget to follow No Dogs Pod on Instagram to see when the next one's coming.
0: Goodbye. 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 I want the last goodbye.